Father, we're tremendously grateful tonight for your wonderful grace to us. Father, I want to thank you that we have been born by grace because you're a gracious God. Father, I want to thank you that we deserved punishment and we deserved wrath and we deserved an eternity in the lake of fire. But by the wonderful love of God, you gave your Son for us that he took our punishment for us on the cross. And because he took the punishment, we happen to have got off without being eternally damned and separated from you. Father, I feel such gratitude in my heart today because Jesus loved me that much that he was prepared to die. Father, we don't take that lightly tonight. Father, we realize what it cost him. And Father, with all the gratitude that's in our heart, we come before you. We want to tell you that we really love you, Father. We really love you for everything that you've given to us. Oh, Father, just reveal to us the very heart of God. Reveal to us the very heart that was in Jesus, that he should die for we who were his enemies. And Father, produce that heart in us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Oh, Father, I do thank you for the opportunity tonight to speak on the subject of eternal security. Father, that it thrills us so much to know how wonderful and complete your work is, that we have no reason to fear at all, for indeed we are kept by the power of God. Father, we thank you so much, and I just pray tonight for the anointing of God on what should be said, Father, that, Father, we should see the issues so clearly, and, Father, be challenged in the very depth of our being. Father, that Jesus should be uplifted and Jesus glorified in everything we do and say and think. Oh, Father, that's the greatest desire of our hearts. And tonight we come to you with that burning inside of us, that desire burning through us, Father, that we should live a life glorifying to him. Oh, Father, tonight, tonight, Father, may the words that are spoken be acceptable. And, Father, may they produce such a hungering after the, the righteousness of God yes. that, Father, each one of us should be more determined when we leave here to seek you and to love you and to re represent you more fully. Yes. Father, I ask all of that because we love you, Lord. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, by this time, you should have a full knowledge of your salvation. You should certainly know that the barrier has gone once and for all and that the only barrier now that could possibly exist is the barrier of the Lord Jesus himself who acts as a barrier only to those who refuse to believe in him. We saw last time that the unforgivable sin was the sin of not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ as personal saviour. Any person who does not believe there is no further sacrifice. There is no other sacrifice but the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're stuck on the one side of the barrier, which is the cross. To you who are believers, of course, you're sitting quite pretty when someone actually mentions the unforgivable sin. Because you know that the very fact that you are a believer means that you haven't committed the unforgivable sin. In fact, far from it, you can't commit it. Praise God. Well, tonight we're taking a step further into the wonderful glories of our salvation. And so tonight I come on to the first talk on eternal security. And this is number one in the eternal security group. Alright? Now, eternal security is a very much misunderstood subject. It's a subject which actually can have a wrong emphasis if you're not very careful. And it's a subject which generally gets people hot under the collar when you mention it. 
basically, we can express the whole concept of eternal security by asking the question that we all ask at times, or we all will be asked at times. And that is, and here's the question coming up, is it possible for a person who has truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, in other words, a person who is truly born again, is it possible for such a one to lose his salvation? By losing salvation, I mean that he will actually end up in the lake of fire forever and forever and forever in absolute separation from God. If I look at myself, does it mean that I, who has served the Lord, could end up in the lake of fire if next week I decide that perhaps I want to cool things off a bit? Is that true or is it not true? Does it mean that actually I can look at all my brothers and sisters in this room and know that there's a possibility that perhaps they're not going to spend eternity with me. Because that's what is at, at question when we're talking about eternal security. Alright, now there's the fundamental question. You normally find this question is asked uh, when someone meets a person who says they were a Christian, but who now says, oh, but uh, I've changed my mind now. Or someone that you know who used to be a thriving Christian and who now seems to be totally worldly and living in sin and really not caring very much about it. And as soon as you meet you, them, you think, now, are they going to get to heaven? Or have they actually rejected the Lord that they used to love? And does that rejection mean that actually they're in the, the position of the unbeliever? And all of us, of course, know people in that category. By the way, you've got to be very careful. There are some people who say that they were believers who actually have never been born again. There are some who actually have been christened, say, C of E or into some other denomination, and actually have never actually received Christ as their personal saviour, who at the age of, say, 21, suddenly think, oh, it's a lot of rubbish, it's a lot of bunker, and they turn their back on it. Now, such a person has never been saved, so they cannot be used. And we've got to be very careful that the people that we're actually viewing were truly born again people. Now, if they were, is it possible they could be lost? That's the question that we're actually asking. All right? So important a question is it that actually I'm devoting three whole hour sessions to the subject. Today, I'm dealing with the preliminaries of eternal security. Today. And I'm going to, I hope, solve some of the questions that might enter your head over the whole subject tonight. Next week, I'm going to deal with those uh, texts, those verses in Scripture, which support the view that, in fact, um, salvation is forever and forever, and that once you actually are saved, you can never lose your salvation. And then the week after that, I'm going to deal with what about those problem verses that seem to suggest the opposite. In fact, there are about 85 verses that people will quote at you, uh, tending to suggest that actually a person can lose their salvation. And I would like to make it clear before I begin that I believe that once you are saved, you are always saved. I do personally believe in eternal security. All right? Nevertheless, we've got to deal with these scriptures that people are likely to quote at you. All right? Now, there, that's the plan that we're going to take over the next three weeks. Preliminary this week, positive next week, and then we'll deal with the negative the week after. One thing is clear, and we've got to keep this firmly in mind. Once you are a born-again believer, God expects holiness from your life. 
Now I want to make that point very clear before we begin. He expects a level of righteousness to start flowing from you. Do you know that? In fact, the purpose of the Christian life, if uh, someone were to ask you this, what is the purpose of the Christian life? The whole purpose of the Christian life is that we should be conformed to the image of Jesus. If someone asks you, there's the, there's the answer. That we should be conformed to the image of Jesus. What that means is this, that in every way we're going to represent him. Ephesians 5.1 says, be ye imitators of God. And to be an imitator of God, an imitator of Christ, means that you're going to show forth his holiness. You're going to show forth his righteousness. I love it, actually, uh, the way that it's summed up in Galatians. And let's just turn to that little verse, shall we? In Galatians chapter 1, and verse 16, where Paul expresses what to me is the complete essence of Christianity. This is Galatians and chapter 1 and verse 16. Galatians 1, 16. Actually, again, we'll begin with verse 15 and go on to verse 16. And here it is. And Paul's talking about his own experience here. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me. And I'm going to stop right there. And the Bible is a book of prepositions. Always remember that. It's these little words that are so important. If you have a modern translation, you may find that says, to reveal his son to me. That's not correct. It's to reveal his son in me. And do you know the whole purpose of the, the Christian life is that? That Christ may be revealed in me. If we Christians would just get that right, and we could get that right, it would save actually missing the mark of the Christian life. Ours is not to have a, a nice little club that we all go along to and pat one another on the back and help one another. That's not it. Neither, actually, is it to uh, go out on the streets and hand out tracts here, there and everywhere. That's not it. The best form of evangelism is Christ in me, fully revealed. Because it means when I get on the bus, Christ is getting on the bus. Praise God. It means when someone chats to me about the price of a loaf, Christ is coming out of me. When they meet me, they're going to meet Christ. Now that's the essence. Do you know every problem in your life, every situation you're going to face, all the dealings of God, all the blessings of God, are for that one purpose, that Christ may be revealed in you. If you don't see that, then what's it all about? What's all the suffering about? What's all the problems you're going to have next week? What are they all about? It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. And that's the whole purpose, you see? And so his righteousness has got to come out of me. And God has called every believer to a walk of absolute holiness and absolute righteousness that we might show forth his righteousness. Uh, there's a man I'd like to quote, A.J. Gordon... Uh, once said this, he said, a true Christian walk is the re reproducing in our lives of the righteousness which is already ours in Christ. Just that. Now, we've seen this before, and to refresh our memories, let's remind ourselves of what we're talking about. When uh, you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he didn't only deal with your sins, and make, thereby making you neutral as far as sin was concerned. You see, God is 
positive righteousness. He's absolute righteousness. And if you're just neg- well, if if you're just neutral, you can't actually approach this God who's so positive. And in order to overcome that problem, you remember, what had to happen? Christ had to give you his righteousness. So that actually, when you meet the Father, you actually go into his presence with the full righteousness of Jesus in you. Praise God. Uh, Keep Well, don't don't keep your finger in the place. Let's turn to it. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is by way of recap. And I hope you all know this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Alright, verse 21 For he hath made him, that's Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what happened was a swap was effective. My sin was put on Christ, Christ's righteousness was put on me. So when I get to heaven, I'm going to meet Father on the same terms of righteousness. That's what it means. I won't have to cower away. Now, I receive the righteousness as a gift from Christ. Now, that's marvellous. But you see, that's going to be true when I die. What I want is it to be true now while I'm alive. And that's the aim of the Holy Spirit in me. And that's the, the aim of God the Father in my life. To reveal the righteousness now. Now, if we bear that in mind, it's going to actually help us to avoid the ridiculous extremism that comes from, uh, comes from some people who believe that actually, as a Christian, it doesn't matter what you do in your life. You see, there are some people who believe that if you've received the righteousness of Christ anyway as a gift, you can live a life as you want to live. You can go on sinning, you can sin here, you can sin there, but as it's righteousness is a gift, it really doesn't matter. Let's bear that in mind firmly, and I'm going to come back to it. God wants righteousness from each one of our lives, full stop. You are not a free agent to live as you want to live. Definitely not. Keep it in mind, and then we're safe to go on to eternal security. Alright, now generally speaking, the whole concept of eternal security falls between two major camps. And these camps are named after their founders. The first camp uh, was founded by John Calvin. And they're called the Calvinists. You may have heard of it. Calvin, C-A-L-V-I-N. The Calvinists. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, you've got the followers of Jacob Arminius, and they're called the Arminians on the other side. Arminius, A-R-M-I-N-I-U-S. Jacob Arminius. Now, they're the two camps. Uh, The problem, of course, uh, is if you say, I'm a Calvinist or I'm an Arminian, unfortunately, you don't only get allied with their truths, you also get allied with their extremism as well, and that's the problem. Now, let's, let's see about these. Let's take Calvinism, first of all. Uh, the Calvinists believe this. They believe in eternal security, generally speaking. And the Calvinists believe that God foreknew every believer. And that because God foreknew every believer, he called and chose every believer. And because God chose every believer, we're going to be saved. Alright? Now that's what they believe. In other words, it's God, absolutely, who's done all the work, as far as salvation is concerned. 
In the past, he chose us. And because of his choosing in the past, before the foundation of the world, in the future, we're going to be saved. Now, that's fine, except do you see the problem? It l tends to leave out the present. And if we're not careful, and some Calvinists aren't careful, they tend to imply that because it's all past, it doesn't matter what you do in the present. Oh no, God's called us. God's chosen us. I know I'm going to be saved because of God's calling. And so you jump from the past right through into the future, and the present gets lost somewhere. And because of that, you get extremists in the Calvinist camp, who are people who actually live lives of great Im immorality and great lasciviousness. And they say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to be saved anyway. Amen. You see? Now that's the tra tragedy of it. Um, if we take the Arminians, on the other hand, uh, they believe more in the present. Oh yes, they believe, call, they believe that God has called us and that he's chosen us, but they believe that that calling is only operative providing we believe every day of our lives. You see? So they concentrate on the present. So the Calvinists are past and future. The Arminians tend to be in the present all the time. And they believe, you see, that I may be saved today because I believe, but tomorrow I may not believe. And so tomorrow I'm in danger. They also believe that if I live a life of holiness today, I'm all right. But if I sin tomorrow, then there's danger, as, as far as loss of salvation is concerned. Now, there are the two camps. By the way, the Arminians also have their extremists. The, the extremists among, in the Arminian camp are those, of course, who work under a legalistic type of system. They have a whole list of rules. You must do this, you mustn't do this, you've got to do this, you mustn't do that, don't do this, don't, 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 don't. And if you can tick them all, then you're okay. You see? I heard of a Jew who actually went into a church which was Arminian, and on the, the front, in the entrance hall, was a list of, in this church, we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't do it. And there was a whole list of laws, you know. And uh, someone saw he was Jewish, and they came up to him and said, isn't it good to be out from the law? And he turned around and said, I think you're more under the law than I ever was. <laughs> you see? And there's the danger. And, of course, the, ex the absolute extremists in the Arminian camp are those who try and live under the Mosaic law. They're the type that uh, keep the Sabbath, or try to keep the Sabbath. Uh, they, they won't cook a Sunday lunch, or a Saturday lunch, depending on which day they actually choose. And so you get the extremists. Fine. Now, there are the two camps. Now, what we've got to do is this. We mustn't ally ourselves totally with either. If you do that, you tend to be classed with the extremists, always. We've got to take a firmly solid biblical viewpoint on the whole subject. Now, let's take it. It is true that God has foreknown us. It is true that God has called us and chosen us, and because of that election, we're going to be saved. To see that, let's turn to Romans and chapter 8. Romans and chapter 8. And verse 29, that's a surprise to all, I'll be dealing with Romans 8, 28 in a few weeks' time. Alright, now, <clears throat> here we see a very, very important uh, group of verses. This is Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and verse 30. 
Now, notice what it says. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. And by the way, to be predestined means that you really are going to get there. It's all predestined. In uh, the series number five in the basic course, I'll be dealing with predestination in some detail. But if you're foreknown, you're predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. I love that because it means we're going to be absolutely the same as Jesus. Absolutely. He's the firstborn. We're going to be like him. We'll be conformed to his image. Verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. And do you see the continuum that's here? If you're foreknown, you are definitely going to be glorified. Definitely. Because Christ doesn't begin a work without bringing it to completion. So as far as that's concerned, the Calvinists are correct. Alright? It is also true, of course, that we have been promised salvation. And it is true that our unrighteousness has been dealt with by justification. It's true. All of that's true. But what often the Calvinists today miss out is the fact that there is also a present a present commitment also. You see, the Calvinists, as I've said, concentrate on the past. But the Bible also concentrates on the present. Now, how? Because it says in the Bible that every day Christ liveth to make intercession for us. My eternal security, and in fact my salvation, isn't only a matter of what Christ, God did before the foundation of the earth. It's also the fact that today Christ has been interceding for me. Do you see, there is a present part of our salvation. A very present part of our salvation. Today Christ has mentioned me. I've been on his lips. He's been interceding for me. And what it means is this. If any day passed when he didn't intercede for me, I would definitely end up in the lake of fire. Definitely. I would be consigned to eternal wrath as far as God is concerned. Tomorrow I need Christ's intercession. The day after I need Christ's intercession. I do. Let's have a look at it in Hebrews in chapter 7. And we see the present part of it all. Hebrews in chapter 7. And verse 24 and 25. What a marvellous group of verses. 24 and 25. And this man, and it's talking about Christ, this man, because he continueth ever, because he lives forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. The word uttermost means everlastingly. To the end of time, he's able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And what that's saying is, you see, every day until the end of time, I need someone to intercess for me. Every single day. Well, Christ is going to be there every day until the end of time. And because he is there every day until the end of t time, I'm all right. I've got my intercessor. Now, Israel always needed a high priest to represent the nation before God. We've got our high priest. And today he's represented you. Do you know that? Your very name has been on his lips. That's what it means. Now, 
That present part of our salvation means that God today expects something of us. He really does. Some Christians get this idea that because Christ died 2,000 years ago, that God somehow deals leniently with sin, or that he somehow overlooks our sin. I want to tell you something that's not true. Every sin that's ever been committed is horrific to God. He hates it and loathes it. Every sin that you are going to commit next week, he hates it and he loathes it with all his loathing. He really does. And you may forget it. You may gloss over it. But I'll tell you, Christ hasn't forgotten it. And when the smell of your sin enters the nostril of God and he feels the nausea which he feels because it is sin, Christ has to step in and say, Father, I paid for it on the cross. I remember the agony that that sin cost me. It cost me everything. I remember the pain. I remember the blood that I spilt for that particular sin. And every day, if we sin, Christ is having to have our, our sin and therefore his suffering brought in front of his face. Do you see that? That's important. If you put it all in the past, then you don't understand what it's all about. It's the present day intercession that counts. Today, my sin hurts Jesus, because he has to intercede on behalf of that sin. And that's why today, the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and through his presence inside of me, is telling me, will you live a life that's holy before God? Will you do it? Because otherwise, Jesus is the one that has to have his suffering brought back to his memory to be represented before God. You see? And that's what the Holy Spirit's causing within us. That's why it says, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You see, the Holy Spirit in me loves Jesus, really loves him, is transfixed by the love that he has for Jesus. And sin in my life causes the Holy Spirit to grieve because of his beloved up there in heaven having to intercede on behalf of that sin. Do you see that? And it says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And that's a call to holiness within us. And every person in this room, you've got to realise your present sin does provoke a reaction up in heaven. Don't think, oh, it's just nothing. It's everything. Because Jesus paid the full price and the wrath of God descends on sin. And it descended on Christ on the cross. Now, you've got to get that clear, you see. So, it, do you see, your future may be eternally secure. Every day, God is expecting righteousness, righteousness, righteousness inside of me. Now, that's the biblical view as far as eternal security is concerned. There is a present, everyday part of eternal security. I am only eternally secure, A, because of the calling of God, and B, because Christ ever liveth to make intercession for me. Now that keeps us dead on course and stops us from extremism. If you keep that in mind, you can't be one of these who say, oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to sin. It really doesn't matter. Neither do you have to get back under law, because always your love of Jesus will drive you on to holiness in your life. Do you see? It's important. Do you know, some Arminians actually feel that we mustn't preach grace too much. They think it's dangerous. You know, oh, you mustn't preach grace. If you preach grace, you'll have all your people sinning. No. They believe that actually the threat of a lost salvation is what produces holiness. And they will do it. 
I know Christians who do this constantly. I know ministers who are constantly threatening their flocks, saying, if you sin, you will lose your salvation. Therefore, don't sin. You see? And they think that preaching grace actually causes people to sin. I want to tell you that this knowledge of Christ's intercession far, far from produces sin. It produces holiness. It produces such a desire for holiness that actually it becomes the whole end as far as our lives are concerned. You see? Now, these people actually say, you've got to preach that people are lost after they're saved. Otherwise, they won't live holy lives. Well, rather than just judge that view by ourselves, what I want to do is this. I want to look at passages in the Bible that talk on holiness. And what I want to see is, do the passages that actually inspire us to holiness, do they actually have a threat of lost salvation contained within them? You see? Because that's an important question, isn't it? You see, if the Bible does it that way, then I must do it that way. But if the Bible doesn't do it that way, what does it do instead? If they're right, every single passage that deals with holiness in the Bible will have a threat of lost salvation attached to it. You've got to be holy or you're going to lose your salvation. Now that's, that's what we must see. So I'm going to give quite a full list of uh, scriptures that deal with holiness in our lives. A call to righteousness in the body of Christ. And I want to see what is the thing that leads us to the holiness. What is it? And I'm going to begin with perhaps the best verse of all. Found in Titus. Timothy, Titus. Found in Titus and chapter 2. Alright, Titus 2, verse 11 and verse 12. And this is very important. Here we go. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. Now, what is it that teaches us holiness? What is it? Well, it's in verse 10. For the, verse 11, I beg your pardon. For the grace of God teaches us. It's the grace of God that teaches us. And if you read the context, there's no threat of a lost salvation anywhere in sight. Dehan, who is a well-known Bible teacher, actually said this, and I've got a quotation. If you think that grace encourages sin, then you don't understand grace. And I agree with that 100%. Here, we've got a call to holiness. And what's the call? Grace is the call to holiness. And an understanding of grace and what Jesus did on the cross is the greatest incentive to personal holiness that there is. Right. Okay, let's press on. Uh, Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 10. Now, I'm going to take quite a lot of these to really emphasize the point. Ephesians... Chapter 2 and verse 10. We'll be back in Ephesians a little later. Ephesians 2 and verse... Well, beginning verse 8, of course. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now there are the good works mentioned. What's the thing that causes us to walk in good, good works? Um, a fear of loss of salvation? It is not. Nowhere mentioned. What is it? One, it's grace. Second, we're his workmanship. And you know, a revelation of the fact that I'm his workmanship is the very thing that causes me to start walking in the works of God. I'm just giving you what the Bible says about it, by the way. Uh, incidentally, there isn't one passage in Scripture anywhere that couples holy living with a fear of loss of salvation. Not one single verse anywhere. And they're wrong. Definitely wrong in their views. Let's have a look at some more. All right, and really press this home. Uh, turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. Romans and chapter 6, verse 11 to 15. Ask yourself again, is this based on the threat or is it not? Verse 11 to verse 15. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the point of truth? We're alive unto God. I'm alive unto God. I'm not dead anymore. Hallelujah. I'm not dead. I don't have to be down with the dead bones of this world, of a dying generation. I'm alive. Hallelujah. And it's that truth that's going to lead me on in this passage. Now you just look at it. Verse 12, let not sin therefore, and whenever you've got a therefore, it means because of what I've just said, don't let it happen. Let sin, not sin therefore, reign in your mortal body. Why? Because sin's death and you're not dead, you're alive. Hallelujah. Now that's liberty. It's nothing to do with, oh, I mustn't sin, otherwise I'm going to lose my salvation. Not at all. It's a positive response to a positive truth. I'm risen from the dead. Glory, hallelujah. I don't have to sin anymore. That's the old, it's the dead, it's the gone, it's the finished. Hallelujah, I'm free. A revelation starts producing the righteousness of God inside of you. You see? Right, it goes on. That ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of righteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Repeat, repeat. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. You don't need the law. It's because you're not under law that you can live a life that's glorifying to God. Praise his name. And then, of course, verse 15. And have you heard people say this to you? What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? I've heard... Arminians come up to me sometimes and they've said something like, uh, like that to me. Won't telling a person that he's actually under grace and eternally secure mean that he's going to live in sin? And that's what Paul's asking. He's saying, shall we live in sin that grace may abound? What's his answer? God forbid! Other translations give it as, never, not on your life. Perish the thought. Do away with it. Of course not. Why? I'm alive. 
Hallelujah. It's a positive response to a positive truth, not a negative response to a negative one. Praise God. God always deals in the positive. Always, every time. Fine. Let's go on uh, to practical passages. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. Verse 15. And it begins with the word know. And he's saying, I want you to know this truth. I want you to know these truths. Get them in. Verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. To the end. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ. No threat there. It's a, a positive truth. I'm a born again believer and I'm a member of the body of Christ. Right. So all the parts of my body are joined to Christ. Fine. What's my response? So I know that truth. What will it do in me? Well, read on. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. Never. Perish the thought. Don't mention that again. Of course not. There isn't there the threat. Now look, if you're going to have sexual relationships with a prostitute, you're going to lose your salvation. Not at all. He's saying, look, get the revelation you're joined to Christ. Are you going to join your members to that of a prostitute, knowing that you're members of the body of Christ? Certainly not. God forbid. Of course not. And your response to that piece of information should be for more holiness in your life. There it is. And go on. Uh, verse 16. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. I've dealt with the one flesh con concept, if you're interested, on the divorce tape. Very important. Verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Verse 18. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Now here's more truth. Know ye not that ye, your body, is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which ye have of God, and ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. Now there's two more bits of information. You're the temple of the Holy Ghost. You're bought with a price. Result? Here it is. Therefore, glorify God in your body, and in your spirit, which are God's. Do you see that? It's a positive response. No fear of lost salvation anywhere on the horizon. And by the way, if there was a church that he could have talked to about lost salvation, it would have been the Corinthian church. He chooses not to. Right, on Ephesians chapter 4. I hope I'm making the point. Praise God. We could go on and on and on quoting passages like that. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1. Now we've got a therefore. As soon as you get a therefore, it means that he's developed an argument in the past and this is the conclusion. See? Right. What's his argument in the past, we've got to ask? What's, what's the point? Verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are caught. It's a call to holiness. Right. What's gone before in the preceding chapters? Has he given them a diatribe on the fact they're going to lose their salvation unless they live holy lives? Not at all. Hasn't even mentioned it. What's he mentioned? Let's go very rapidly through, shall we? Verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1. Having, sorry, verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him. 
You've been chosen. Do you know what that means? It's like God choosing a caramel out of a box of chocolates. And he happened to say, you're the one for me. It means God's elected me. I, he's voted for me. That's a positive thing, which needs a positive response. There we are. He's chosen me. Verse 5. He's predestined me unto the adoption of sons. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption. I've been redeemed. Verse 11. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance. These are all positive things. Verse 13. Ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. It's verse 13. There it is. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 6. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 19. I'm going through these very quickly indeed. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. I'm fellow citizen, I'm in the household of God. Positive. Again, verse 22. In whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Chapter 3, verse 19. And to know the love of Christ. Wrath of Christ? No. The love of Christ. There it is, which passes knowledge, and we can know it. Hallelujah. Verse 20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, throughout all ages, world without end. I therefore, the prison of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy. Hallelujah. You see, it's a call to holiness based on truth, not based on fear. Right, on to another one. Haven't finished yet. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. <clears throat> and verse 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10 to 12. And he's talking about himself here. He's been, he's preached the gospel, he's witnessed to them. What does he say about himself? Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily his life was filled with holiness. And justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comfort and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. There we are. What? That ye would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. And there it's saying we didn't come threatening you. We didn't come with wrath in our mouths. Not at all. We came like a father approaching his children. And do you know if any father threatens his children with exclusion from the family in order to get obedience, he's lost before he begins. No father in his right mind would do that to his children. To say to your child, you're going to be thrown out on the pavement and you're not coming in again unless you do what I say. Never. And uh, Jay Adams, who is a Christian psychiatrist in the States, has actually estimated that 80% of all Christians who have nervous breakdowns or mental illness after they've been saved are people of our, an Arminian persuasion. Most of them feel they're not good enough. Most of them feel they've committed a sin, which means they're forever and eternally damned. 
Most of them feel that actually it, the position is absolutely hopeless. And he has checked it out in his own clinic. 80% are actually of the Arminian persuasion. And I praise God for the truth that set me free. For I spent two years of my life in constant condemnation, a constant fear that because of the sin which so easily beset me, I was in constant danger of hellfire. Sometimes I was afraid to leave my room in case I'd be run down in the street. And we used to sing songs saying, I would not be a liar. No, I would not be a deceiver. I would not tell a lie. For my Lord might come to call me and I wouldn't be ready to die. And I used to believe that. I used to think if I lied and then I died, I'd be forever in the lake of fire. And these were the things that beset me. And did my life actually devolve around Christ? Did it all revolve around his presence? Was I enraptured with him? I was not. I spent my whole life trying and determined not to sin. Only sinning more and more and more and more and more as a result. You see, I became preoccupied with sin. I became preoccupied with failure. And Christ gradually was removed from the scene. And then the day came when some person whispered in my ear, Listen, you're kept by the power of God. Oh, hallelujah. And I started being transfixed by the presence of Jesus and the love of Jesus cascading down. And I suddenly found when I fell in love that all those sins that had beset me, they fell. They dropped to my feet. And as I've loved him more, so sin has been left behind. Hallelujah. That's the response to a positive, loving heart of Jesus, not to a negative, threatening stick held above your head. Not at all. I'm not going to finish there. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And verse 1. And what's the truth? You're risen with Christ. Hallelujah. Right, risen. If, and you are, we saw that in number one. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. No threat at all. Positive doctrine. Set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Right, now verse 4 and 5. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Hallelujah. By the way, there's not a, if you continue and remain faithful. Not at all. When he appears, you're going to appear, he says. And then verse 5. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. And so he lists them. That's right. Why? Because when he comes, we're going to be like him. And that truth should spur us on to put to death the world that's already crucified to us by the cross of Christ. Hallelujah. Right, back to Corinthians. Chap uh, this is 2 Corinthians and chapter 6. Where we've got this call for Christians not to marry non-Christians. Alright. Now what's he going to say? If you marry a non-Christian, you're going to lose your salvation. And that's going to be it. Curtains. Lake of fire for you both. Not at all. Definitely not at all. What does he say? Verse 14. 
Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? He says, your righteousness. What fellowship do you have with unrighteousness? Your light. What fellowship can you have with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? Look at that. For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them. And so it goes on. All right? Positive response. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. 1 John 3, 1 to 3. One John three, one to three. And here it says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Do you see that? And that's saying, remember, Christ is coming for you. He's coming perhaps tomorrow. And if you remember that, you're going to purify yourselves all the time. No, I could go on. On and on. Do you see the point? It's not the outside at all that counts. It's what is the truth inside that's going to make a response in each of our hearts. There it is. And if we see there's a present responsibility, Christ is interceding. We're going to get it just dead right in our lives. And holiness will start springing from it. All right. Now, I've said right at the beginning that we've got to beware because there are some people who actually say they were Christians who weren't ever a Christian. Now, there are some people who give a mental assent to Christianity, who actually say, yes, I think it's a good moral system. I think it's a good ethical system. And so you, you've heard, you've met them, the type who say, well, even if Christ didn't exist, I'd be a Christian. Now, I want to tell you, I couldn't be a Christian if Christ didn't exist. I couldn't be a Christian if Christ didn't die for me. I couldn't be a Christian if Christ didn't raise uh, me from the dead when he rose from the dead. I couldn't. I couldn't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, you see. And as soon as you meet one of these people, they may on the outside look good. But the point is with us, it's our new nature inside that produces the holiness on the outside. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're whitewashed tombs. You look super on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. You see? And we've got to really beware, because listen, they can live a so-called Christian life in terms of morality for a little time. But you see, their nature hasn't been changed inside. It really hasn't. They've studied uh, the Beatitudes in the Bible, for example. They've studied the life of Christ. And they say, yeah, it's very good. Yes, I think that's right. I'm going to start living that. And they try. But they're trying to change the outside without the inside being changed. And we've got to be careful. And in the early church, they were docked with these people. 
you know, don't you, within a few decades of uh, Christ's death, all sorts of weird things had started cropping up in the church. And one of them was a group of people who tried to live good lives. They learned about Christ. They learned about his life and they tried to be good themselves. And you know what happened? It lasted for a little time, but soon they found themselves sinning again. And what they did, they came into the church and they were actually preaching to the church and leading the church astray. We find them actually mentioned in 2 Peter. And I want to make this point just before we end to show the difference between us and someone who is a moralistic Christian. In 2 Peter and chapter 2. Now this is the worst Greek found in the New Testament. It's written by Peter probably just before he died. And in verse, in chapter 2, you see what it uh, begins with in verse 1. It talks about false teachers. There it is. And the whole thing talks about false teachers in the midst. And the whole chapter is a description of these false teachers. And he's, the point he's making is they didn't actually have a new nature within them because they weren't born again. Now I want to, you to know this. You know you can bathe a pig. You can perfume a pig. You can teach it to walk on two legs. You can, so that it walks upright. You can dress it like a man, but it's still a pig. It may look like a man, it's still a pig. I remember the Archbishop of Canterbury being asked about um, apes and men. And he, uh, the chap who asked him was a biologist, and he said, there's not too much difference, he said to the Archbishop of Canterbury. There's not too much difference. He said, because if you took a human b baby and put him in a chimp family, he'd grow up like a chimpanzee. And the Archbishop of Canterbury stood up to answer, and he said, it is perfectly true, he said, that if you take a human baby and put it among the apes, it will grow up like an ape. But if you take a, a baby chimpanzee and put it among humans, it will never grow up to be anything but a chimpanzee. And that's the point I'm making, you see. With us, there's the change inside. With these people, there's only a change on the outside, and it's my new nature in me that's going to produce the holiness. It's going to come out from within me. Hallelujah. Do you see that? As I submit to God and as I allow the new nature to come out. Now here you've got a group of people who accepted the morals of Christianity. That's all. But they didn't actually uh, receive Christ as their personal saviour. The whole chapter describes them. Let's just take the end few verses. Verse 20. And it's talking, well, verse 19. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Do you see that's an unborn again man? For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought into bondage. And these have an old nature, they are sinners by nature. This nature is going to produce sins no matter how much they try to cover up on the outside. That's why I had to be a new creation inside. And it goes on, verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, these are men who studied the Beatitudes. These are men who studied the life of Christ. And they started reforming. But it didn't last long. Why? Because the nature hadn't changed. Oh, for about a year they were really on fire, apparently. For about a year their life seems to come into some order. And what happened? Look what it says. 
they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And I want to say this, I found that true. Those that know about Christianity, those who think they're Christians are harder to get through to than those who know that they're wretched sinners and they're wretched atheists. Really does. And in case you're a bit confused over that, he sums it all up with a verse that can't be confused at all. Verse two, 22. But it has happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again. And as you know, after a dog is sick, it's not long before it goes back and starts sniffing out the sick and starts eating it again. Why? Because it's still a dog. And these men are still worldly, unregenerate people. They're still dogs. There it is. And the sow that was washed to her own wallowing in the mire. Oh, nice and clean outside, but still a pig and still loving the filth. All right, if that's true of the world, I want to tell you, it's different with you. You've got a new man inside of you who's been made for good, new, clean works. Praise God. You've got a new man inside of you that's made for righteousness. And whether you believe in eternal security or whether you don't, I'm going to tell you the Holy Spirit inside of you wants you to live a life of holiness and purity in utter dedication to God. Hallelujah. Now, I've said all of that before. Next week we get on to verses about eternal security. Because I find it's the major objection to those who believe in eternal security. They seem to think that we believe that you can live a life that you want to live. You cannot. And next week we're going to see why you cannot. Because God happens to be a very good father who disciplines his children very well. Praise God. He disciplines his children because they're his children, not because they're not his children. Praise God. Now, tonight, as a preliminary to eternal security, I've got to emphasize it again. He's demanding holiness. Praise God. And I want Christ revealed in me, in all of his fullness, all of his power, and all of his holiness. Amen. Praise God.